hello and happy new year and welcome back to the Cory Doctor podcast. It's been a minute since I recorded the last one of these for uh, Christmas. We were away on our Christmas holidays doing some scuba diving and then came back and uh, I had to go out of town for an engagement last weekend and so this is my weekend in town but as you'll hear it's my near to last weekend in town for quite some time. I've got a lot of stuff coming up. But I've also had a lot of stuff get wrapped up since I last spoke to you. I finished my novel, The Bezel. That's the second Martin Hench novel, the sequel to Red Team Blues that comes out this spring. That plan for Red Team Blues book tour is coming on very well. It's going to be US, Canada, and UK. I'm also going to be in Australia with my book, Choke Point Capitalism, in February, as you'll hear. So lots of travel coming up, maybe coming to a city near you. Downside, of course, is that I'm not going to be recording a lot of podcasts because I'm going to be back on the road. Many of you saw that I auctioned off or sold off some Tuckerizations, some naming rights for characters in the bezel and uh, in the sequel to it, Picks and Shovels. That was to benefit Locus Magazine. I'm a longtime columnist. I think at this point, maybe their longest standing columnist. They have a few reviewers who've been at it longer than me, but not columnists. So uh, Locus Magazine, where I'm a columnist, it's a nonprofit. And some of you generously coughed up to get naming rights to characters in the bezel. I'm thankful for that. There will be some more naming rights up for grabs. I'm going to do a Kickstarter for the audiobook of the bezel. That's coming soon. So, Or, or not of the bezel, rather, of Red Team Blues. But I'm going to be selling naming rights for characters in the bezel and picks and shovels. Speaking of picks and shovels, the third and for now final book in the Martin Hench trilogy, that is nearly done, about 90% of the way through and hoping to have it done maybe by the time I head out to Australia. So I won't be doing novel writing there. I do have some short stories to write. There's still one Little Brother short story to write from the Kickstarter for Attack Surface. There's a short story that I promised to write about the unilateral nuclear disarmament for a nonprofit. And after that, I'm going to mostly focus on rewriting, getting ready for these seven books that are coming out over the next three years. What else is going on? Well, I am a man without a kitchen. As of about a week ago, we are renovating our kitchen. We're doing that while we live at home. We asked our builder, our general contractor, do you have any life hacks for how to survive in a house where the kitchen is under renovation? And he smiled and said, yes, you should move out, which is something we would love to do, except that our cats would freak out and we don't have anywhere to go and it would cost too much and so on. So we are now eating takeout from a microwave in our fridge for three meals a day, or a couple of meals a day anyway, and um, living on top of each other as half of our house is now sealed off with floor-to-ceiling plastic while the kitchen is gutted. It is inevitably the case with a house about as old as ours, which is about a half century, that when you open the walls, you find a lot of dirty secrets. In our case, it was that the windows were never installed up to code. They didn't have any flashing or waterproofing or insulation. They've been slowly seeping water into the wood, which combined with some old termite damage meant that about half our kitchen walls also had to be replaced inside and out. We are going to end up with a much more structurally sound house when it's all done. Turned out our roof was being held up by two slightly rotten two-by-fours, the others having all rotted away. And we are going to have a better insulated kitchen and a more energy-efficient kitchen, as well as one that's more functional and easier to use. About half of our cabinets had fallen apart by the time we finally got the kitchen redone. So um, really looking forward to that all being wrapped in sort of six to 12 weeks. But for now, we're going in and out of the house from the side entrance. Our yard is uh, covered in tarped over construction materials. And um, it's a little difficult. 
but we're making do. And, you know, the alternative would be to not have a kitchen that was being renovated, which would be worse. So I am thankful for this. If you are in New Orleans or if you are a librarian, you might be going to the American Library Association conference next weekend, January 27th through 30th. I am giving a talk at that conference, and I would like to see you if you're going to be there. On February the 1st, I'm doing a remote talk for University College London Faculty of Laws that you can dial into, and then I leave for my Australian tour. I will be in Brisbane on February 8th to speak at Avid Reader with my co-author Rebecca Giblin, in Melbourne at ACMI on February 14th, in Sydney at the State Library of New South Wales on February 15th, and then in Canberra on the 16th and 17th, first at ANU and second at the Australian Digital Alliance Copyright Forum. There are some other things that are after that that aren't yet in the schedule, but on March the 2nd, I'll be in Brussels for what I believe is still a free conference, the best event I've ever been to on antitrust, the Antitrust Regulation and Political Economy Conference, which is at brusselsconference.com. And I'm going to be on a panel there that I'm also helping to plan with the great antitrust uh, economist, Christina Caffera. I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be a real highlight of the coming year. And as I say, there will be a Canada-US-UK tour for Red Team Blues as well. So today's reading the first reading in quite some time, leaves me spoilt for choice because there's so much that has kind of piled up since the last time I podcasted. But I'm going to read this essay from Locus called Social Quitting. It's in the current January edition of Locus magazine. As I said, that's like the nonprofit science fiction trade magazine that I've been writing for for, I think it's 16 years now, some very long period of time. And they really give me a lot of free reign to write about what I want. And in this case, I wrote about this theory of how social media collapses, what the structural kind of forces are that lead it to a situation where it is fragile and liable to collapse. It's based on a conversation I had with my friend Tim Harford, who some of you may know as the host of the BBC's More or Less program, a very good math literacy program, or from the Financial Times, where he's the undercover economist, or from his uh, excellent books or his um, storytelling podcast, Unexpected Consequences. Anyway, I saw Tim when I was over in the UK touring Choke Point Capitalism, and he gave me the seed of this column. I've since expanded it. If you uh, go to Pluralistic, pluralistic.net, and check out the Inshitification tag, you'll find it, or just type Inshitification into a search engine of your choice. Also, I neglected to mention, I realize, if you want to get more details on any of those upcoming speaking events, go to Pluralistic.net, click on the most recent issue, and under the colophon is the list of upcoming events with links. So that's how you get to participate in or dial into those or, or see me at them. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to read to you Social Quitting, my column in the January 2023 edition of Locus Magazine. As I type these words, a mass exodus is underway from Twitter and Facebook. After decades of eye-popping growth, these social media sites are contracting at an alarming rate. In some ways, this shouldn't surprise us. All the social networks that preceded the current generation experienced this pattern. Six Degrees, Friendster, MySpace, and Bebo all exploded onto the scene. One day, they were sparsely populated fringe services. The next day, everyone you knew was using them, and you had to sign up to stay in touch. Then, just as quickly, they imploded, turning into ghost towns, 
then punchlines, then forgotten ruins. This didn't happen to Facebook and Twitter. Both attained a scale and durability that exceeded the networks that preceded them. For many people, it seemed like the operators of these services had cracked the nut of making eternal social media. Maybe it was their access to the capital markets, which let them hire better engineering teams. Maybe it was the singular genius of their founders and leaders. Maybe it was luck. Today, it's getting harder to believe that these networks will last forever. In the blink of an eye, they've gone from unassailable, eternal mountains to shifting sands that might blow away at any time. Users are scrambling to download their data and tell their friends where they can be found if, when, the service disappears. How did these systems go from permanent to ephemeral? How did it happen so quickly? Here's my theory. When economists and sociologists theorize about social media, they emphasize network effects. A system has network effects if it gets more valuable as more people use it. You joined Facebook because you value the company of the people who are already using it. Once you joined, other people joined to hang out with you. Network effects are powerful drivers of rapid growth. They're a positive feedback loop, a flywheel that spins faster and faster. But network effects cut both ways. If a system gets more valuable as it attracts more users, it also gets less valuable as it sheds users. The less valuable a system is to you, the easier it is to leave. When you leave a system, you have to endure switching costs, everything you give up when you change products, services, or habits. Quitting smoking means enduring not just the high switching cost of nicotine withdrawal, but also contending with the painful switching costs of giving up the social camaraderie of the smoking area, the friends you've made there, and the friends you might make there in the future. For social media, the biggest switching cost isn't learning the ins and outs of a new app or generating a new password. It's the communities, family members, friends, and customers you lose when you switch away. Leaving aside the complexity of adding friends back in on a new service, there's the even harder business of getting all those people to leave at the same time as you and go to the same place. Each commercial social media service has two imperatives. First, to make it as easy as possible to switch to their service, and second, to make it as hard as possible to leave. When Facebook opened up to the general public, and not just university students, it needed a plan to deal with MySpace. At the time, MySpace was the largest social network the world had ever seen. It was overly complex, filled with spam, and often joyless, but for MySpace users, it had a major advantage over Facebook. All their friends were already on MySpace. It didn't matter that Facebook had a better user interface and more features. It didn't matter that Facebook promised not to spy on its users on behalf of its advertisers. Yes, this was Facebook's pitch in 2006 when it dropped the requirement that you sign up with a .edu address. Facebook addressed this problem by giving MySpace users who switched to Facebook a bridge between the two services. Simply give this tool your MySpace login and password, and it would use a bot to log into your MySpace account, scrape all the waiting messages in your queues and inbox, and push them into your Facebook feed. You could reply to these, and the bot would log back into MySpace as you and post these replies. Facebook attacked MySpace's high-switching costs head-on, lowering them for users and unleashing network effects and rapid growth. 
But as Facebook and Twitter cemented their dominance, they steadily changed their services to capture more and more of the value that their users generated for them. At first, the company shifted value from users to advertisers, engaging in more surveillance to enable finer-grained targeting and offering more intrusive forms of advertising that would fetch higher prices from advertisers. This inshittification was made possible by high switching costs. The vast communities who'd been brought in by network effects were so valuable that users couldn't afford to quit, because that would mean giving up on important personal, professional, commercial, and romantic ties. And just to make sure that users didn't sneak away, Facebook aggressively litigated against upstarts that made it possible to stay in touch with your friends without using its services. Twitter consistently whittled away at its API support, neutering it in ways that made it harder and harder to leave Twitter without giving up the value it gave you. When switching costs are high, services can be changed in ways that you dislike without losing your business. The higher the switching costs, the more the company can abuse you, because it knows that as bad as they've made things for you, that you'd have to endure worse when you left. I think this is what's killing the social media giants. Every social media service has costs, trolls, surveillance, ads, identity theft risks, etc., and benefits, community, commerce, family. So long as the benefits outweigh the costs, you'll probably stick around. When benefits outweigh costs, economists call it a surplus. The surplus is the difference between the value you get from using a service and the cost exacted by your ongoing use of that service. Companies that don't have to worry about their users leaving because of high switching costs and or few competitors can scoop up that surplus. They can spy on you more or put more ads into your feed or pay fewer moderators to fight harassment. Once they have taken that surplus from you, they can allocate it to the advertisers who use their platforms. They can charge less to advertise to you, make it harder for you to skip ads and so on. This brings in revenue, which gooses their share price and attracts more advertisers. But all things being equal, the company would prefer that all the surplus would end up on its own balance sheet. Once you are locked in, and once advertisers are locked in, the company can grab the surplus away from those advertisers too. For example, companies can create their own products that directly compete with the ones that the advertisers offer, or they can rig the ad buying market, as Google and Facebook did when they illegally colluded on a secret project called Jedi Blue. The higher the switching costs, the more the social media companies can appropriate of that surplus. That is, the worse they can make things for both advertisers and users. That's what happened to MySpace and Bebo and Friendster and all the other corpses in the social media graveyard. They made things worse for users and advertisers, and that meant that leaving hurt less, which meant that switching costs were lower. As people and businesses started to switch away from the social media giants, inverse network effects set in. The people you stayed on MySpace to hang out with were gone, and without them, all the abuses MySpace was heaping on you were no longer worth it, and you left too. Once you were gone, that was a reason for someone else to leave. The same forces that drove rapid growth drove rapid collapse. The social media companies that are circling the drain today had a very long run. They figured out how to use the law copyright, patent, terms of service, contract, to make it much, much harder for upstarts to offer a way to gracefully exit the system. 
because they had so many of the people that mattered to us trapped inside them, and because they made it so hard to leave, they could really treat us like garbage without risking our departure. They cut the surplus to the bone. And then stuff happened. Mark Zuckerberg got worried about losing users and decided we were all going to live as legless, low-polygon cartoons in a metaverse no one wanted to use, not even the Facebook employees who built it. Twitter got bought out by a low-attention-span, overconfident billionaire who started pulling out Jenga blocks to see whether the system would fall over. And when it did, we all got crushed by those falling blocks. These services had been shaved down to the point where most of us were only a hair's breadth away from quitting because all the surplus had been transferred from us and from business users to the companies. Once things got just a little worse, advertisers and users started to quit and the long-delayed myspacing of Facebook and Beboizing of Twitter began. R.I.P. Okay, it's not going to be next week that I talk to you. It might be a month or two. I'm not sure if there are any Sundays left in my calendar in the first quarter of this year where I'm going to be at my desk. But if I am, I will sit down and record you a podcast. And if not, I hope to see you on the road. It was uh, lovely to get back in front of the mic. I hope you had a great new year and I hope you have a great 2023. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>